Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejects calls for a ceasefire as the country's ground assault in Gaza escalates overnight. It's Tuesday, October 31st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, House Republicans say they can pass a $14 billion aid package for Israel that leaves out money for Ukraine. And a revolutionary medical treatment has now shown promise for sickle cell patients and may soon be approved by the FDA. My life was filled with pain. Couldn't walk, couldn't feed myself, couldn't get out of bed. Plus, in the days before trick-or-treating, Massachusetts communities had to get creative to prevent pandemonium on Halloween. The town of Concord had rat chasing events where kids caught rats, probably to keep the rat population down. Celtics and Bruins win sunny, breezy, and upper 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is rejecting calls for a ceasefire in Gaza, that Israel will press ahead with its plans to wipe out Hamas. He also said he would not resign. More aid is reaching Gaza with about 80 trucks carrying relief supplies slated to enter the enclave today. NPR's Alyssa Nadwery reports that's up from 30 relief trucks yesterday. While the number of trucks entering Gaza has increased, it's still under the 100 trucks of aid the UN estimates are needed there daily. On Monday, officials from the United Nations detailed the humanitarian crisis unfolding in Gaza before the UN's Security Council. Felipe Lazzarini is with the UN agency helping Palestinian refugees in Gaza. Basic services are crumbling. Medicine is running out. Food and water are running out. Fuel is running out. Lazzarini referenced a report from the aid group, Save the Children, that found the number of children reported killed in Gaza in just three weeks has surpassed the annual number of children killed across the world's conflict zones since 2019. Alyssa Nadwerny, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The Biden administration is seeking emergency aid for both Israel and Ukraine. The Republican House is proposing $14 billion for Israel, but nothing for Ukraine. The bill would also cut $14 billion from the IRS budget. NPR's Franca Ordonez has more. The White House is calling this already a non-starter. They say Republicans are playing political games with national security. You know, Biden asked for $106 billion. More than half would have gone to Ukraine, and the rest would be split between Israel, the Indo-Pacific, and the U.S. border. The White House sees Ukraine and Israel as a related fight against terrorists and dictators. And President Biden says if they're not stopped, it's only going to lead to greater threats to America and higher costs as well. NPR's Franco Ordonez. Striking General Motors workers in Missouri are poised to return to their jobs after the United Auto Workers Union reached a tentative contract agreement with the automaker. As St. Louis Public Radio's Will Bauer reports, the UAW's deal with GM is similar to the agreements it reached with Ford and Stellantis. The deal includes a 25% pay raise over roughly five years. Xavier Crenshaw, a GM employee in the St. Louis suburb, says the contract doesn't include everything they wanted, but it's a good start. I think every day was worth it, you know, for us holding the line and doing what we had to do to come to a good agreement. So, I mean, if you ask me, I say it was well worth it. United Auto Workers leadership says it will soon communicate with its members about how and when to return to work. From there, leadership will vote on the tentative deal and could send it to members late this week.
For NPR News, I'm Will Bauer in Wentzville, Missouri. This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. An emergency hearing will be held today to challenge Governor Healy's decision to cap the state's emergency shelter system. It comes three days after the Lawyers for Civil Rights filed a class action lawsuit against the administration. The group says the governor went against the state's right to shelter law by capping the system. It's asking for a restraining order that would stop the state from enforcing a cap. People in Massachusetts are remembering the 18 lives lost in last week's mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. Family, friends, and members of the Greater Boston Deaf Bowling League gathered last night to celebrate victim Steve Vizella. Attendees tell the Boston Globe Vizella was active in the deaf sports community. He grew up in Massachusetts before moving to Maine. Voters in Yarmouth are set to weigh in on new zoning laws that could promote housing development in the community. The town is considering relaxing rules on accessory apartments. Those are often standalone units built on the same lot as a single-family home. Advocates tell the Cape Cod Times the plan would help support a strong, stable, and diverse community in the town. It's Halloween, and this evening, costumed children across the state will parade down sidewalks and streets as they seek their trick-or-treat goodies. But AAA Northeast says the holiday is the most dangerous night on the roads for children. That's why spokesman Mark Shieldrop is urging parents to use things like flashlights and reflective tape to make sure their children are visible to drivers. So that way, when a car is approaching, your child is plainly visible. Uh, right away. Uh, everyone should be carrying a flashlight and keep it on and wave it around as you're walking. You you want to signal to everybody around you that you're there. Shieldrop says between 2002 and 2022, there were 57 pedestrian car crashes on Halloween involving kids in Massachusetts. It's 7.05. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage, presents The Band's Visit. The Pulitzer Prize-winning musical about surprise connections, shared humanity, and love of music. Coming to the Boston stage for the first time ever from November 10th through December 10th at the Huntington Theater. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. The Bruins are celebrating a comeback win against the Panthers. The Bees were two down two goals, but were able to come back to win by one point in overtime. Final score was 3-2. to two. The Celtics are now 3-0 and to start the season. They beat the Washington Wizards on the road last night. Final score was 126-107. to They'll host the Indiana Pacers at home tomorrow. Sunny and breezy today. Temperatures will reach the upper 40s. Tonight, trick-or-treaters will want to bundle up. Clouds will move in and temperatures will dip into the mid to upper 30s. There's a slight chance of rain overnight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and breezy with a chance of rain. Temperatures will rise into the mid 40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza and the rising civilian death toll prompted another emergency session for the United Nations Security Council yesterday. But it ended with little action. It has yet to agree on a legally binding resolution on this crisis. The U.N. General Assembly has voted overwhelmingly for a non-binding resolution that called for a humanitarian truce. The U.S., Israel, along with 12 other countries voted no on that resolution. Meanwhile, inside the Palestinian enclave of Gaza, the health system is collapsing. More than 2.3 million civilians are trapped under Israeli bombardment and struggling to find clean water and food. The Palestinian ambassador to the UN accused the council of failing to carry out its, quote, duty to maintain international peace and security. Riyad Mansour joins us now. Good morning and thank you for being on the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, Ambassador, yesterday we heard Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reject calls for a ceasefire, saying that Israel's goal is to eliminate Hamas and this is a time for war. You've called for an immediate truce to stop the bloodshed. But in this moment, would it matter what the U.N. does after what we heard yesterday from the Prime Minister of Israel? I think the U.N. should matter because the U.N. was created after World War II to uh, save future generations the scourge of war. This is a massive uh, war against the civilian population in the Gaza Strip. And it is the duty of everyone, especially the United Nations and specifically the Security Council, to do everything that they can to have a ceasefire, including humanitarian ceasefire, and to allow for humanitarian help to the 2.3 million civilians. It doesn't make sense to continue killing thousands of Palestinians, including so far 3,500 children. There is no justification whatsoever to continue killing uh, children, women, the elderly, the sick, and to continue uh, collectively punishing them by denying them electricity, water, medicine, food. Uh, And it is, you know, the, the duty of the Security Council to act according to the mandate given to it by the Charter of the UN of maintaining international peace and security. Now, Russia and the U.S. have traded accusations blaming each other for a lack of a binding resolution from the Security Council on the crisis. The U.S. wants language that names Hamas and makes clear that Israel has the right to defend itself. What do you make of the Security Council's inability to pass a resolution on this crisis right now? We tried our best that the Security Council to... Uh, go away from the toxic atmosphere of the split between the two countries that you mentioned with regard, you know, to Ukraine and to bring the tragic situation of the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip to be, you know, affected by this split between these two countries in the Security Council in which the Security Council is paralyzed. That's why we went united, united for peace to the General Assembly, and we adv- we put before the General Assembly a humanitarian uh, resolution uh, based on three elements. One, uh, immediate ceasefire, let's save lives. Two, send, you know, food and the humanitarian assistance as suggested by the Secretary General of the UN at the level of 100 trucks minimum every day. And three, fight against the crime against humanity of 
forced transfer of 2.3 million Palestinian civilians to push them out of the Gaza Strip into the Sinai. And our resolution received an overwhelming, when I say uh, our resolution, I mean the Arabs, the Muslims, the non-aligned movement, all those who voted overwhelmingly in, in favor of that humanitarian resolution is the logical resolution. When there is a crime of ki killing civilians, the first thing that you have to do is stop the killing and then you deal with other political issues later. What do you want to see from the U.S.? And also, are you also calling for the release of the hostages? Well, uh, what we want to see from the United States to, to apply pressure on Israel to stop this madness and to save lives and to have humanitarian ceasefire as called for by the Secretary General and to allow for the humanitarian assistance to reach every part of the Gaza Strip. Uh, with regard to the release uh, of, uh, you know, uh, uh, hostages and uh, captives and prisoners, uh, the Arab foreign ministers called for that in their statement uh, during the first few days of uh, this, you know, war. Uh, so that that is on the table. And I believe as we speak, there are uh, negotiation, perhaps in Qatar and maybe in other places, uh, in which uh, there are serious, uh, uh, you know, efforts to see, you know, that the whole issue of prisoners being dealt with. In the wake of this war, war, we heard President Biden say this weekend that things cannot go back to status quo, to the way things were before October 7th, the Hamas attack inside Israel that killed at least 1,400 people after this crisis. He said, quote, in our view, it has to be a two-state solution. Is the Biden administration engaging with Palestinian leaders on peace and a future state? There is a global consensus on the two-state solution in the Security Council, at the UN, and the United States keep repeating every day, we are for the two-state solution. This extreme Israeli government is destroying the two-state solution before our eyes by building more settlements, expanding settlements, the demolish, the, uh, demolishing homes, ex expelling people, uh, annexing our land, denying us our rights, so that Israel is destroying the two-state solution. And I hear my colleagues in the Security Council, including the United States, that they are for the two-state solution, but they do not do anything of a practical nature to stop the Israeli occupying authority from continuing to destroy, to destroy the two-state solution. We are for the two-state solution. Let us begin a political process that would put an end to the occupation that took place in 1967 and to allow for the implementation of the two-state solution our state will be on the the, the state the two states will be the border of the two states will be the 4th of june of 1967 and east jerusalem will be our capital and west jerusalem their capital and we can live in peace and in harmony as two states living to in, uh, next to each other we are in favor of that the other side are against the two-state solution. Did the Biden administration have any real interaction with the Palestinian leadership on this question pre-October 7th? They, they, uh, we have uh, contacts and, uh, you know, uh, consultation and talks 
between us and the uh, Biden administration. Has that increased in the re- in recent days as he's publicly made statements like these? Uh, w- uh, pre- uh, uh, I mean, uh, Secretary of State uh, Clinton, I mean, sorry, Secretary of State Blinken mm-hmm. was at the United Nations last week and there were a group of Arab ministers, including our foreign ministers, and we had a meeting in which a very, you know, uh, uh, frank uh, uh, talks and discussions took place. And uh, we can build on that, uh, not only with the Secretary of State, but also with other American officials. How has the war, the Hamas attack, Israel's response, affected the prospects of peace and a future state? I think if all of us want to learn one lesson from this tragic war, is that we need justice for the Palestinian people as quickly as possible. We need to implement the two-state solution. We need the end of the occupation. And we need to live and let live. We need to have the two people living in two independent states as good neighbors, as also the world is calling us to do the two-state solution on the basis of international law and relevant UN resolutions, We know what the bases are. We have agreement on that in the international community. We need to do it. We need the political will to do it. Now, as you mentioned, there is alarm from International Rights Group, the the head of the UN, about what they call collective punishment and a disproportionate response from Israel for the attack by Hamas on October 7th. We saw horrific images of that attack that left 1,400 people dead in Israel, that saw Hamas take more than 200 hostages. Now we're seeing these horrific images of civilians being killed in Gaza, thousands of people, most of them women and children, according to Palestinian health officials, families being wiped out. When you look at this crisis, do you blame Hamas at all for this ferocious response from Israel that has killed so many civilians in Gaza? You see, as the Secretary General said in the Security Council correctly, uh, this uh, uh, events of the 7th of October uh, did not come from a vacuum. There is an accumulation for the denial of the rights of the Palestinian people to self-determination to independence, the right of the refugees to return, to live in freedom and dignity in their homeland. And this persistence, you know, denial by the Israeli occupying authorities is leading to these explosions every few years, wars every few years. We need to stay away from war. We need to try peace. Peace requires courageous leaders and people that will be committed, you know, to, uh, to accomplish that objective. That requires the end of occupation and two-state solution on the basis that I, uh, I, uh, I said, and that we need to do it as quickly as possible. We need to put an end to this war and begin in the business of peace. Riyad Mansour is the Palestinian ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. This is NPR News. Good morning. You're starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a revolutionary medical treatment that has shown promise for sickle cell patients may soon be approved by the FDA. It's 719.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met and Hunger to Health Collaboratory, discussing integrated solutions that advance health equity November 16th at CitySpace. Register at h2hcollaboratory.org. I'm Robin Young. Aaron French is the creative force behind one of the hardest restaurants in the country to get into, The Lost Kitchen, and now in a new book she's sharing some of her secrets. This book is really about giving you that tool to add a little something special that you can take something that feels ordinary and make it extraordinary. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Sunny, a bit windy, and a high near 50 today. It'll grow cloudy and fall into the upper 30s for trick-or-treating tonight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high near 45. There's a slight chance of rain. It's 41 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Its Secure Our World program is aimed at encouraging people to recognize and report phishing. More at cisa.gov slash secureourworld. From United Airlines, on a mission to do good in the air and committed to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Learn more at united.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky. Stormy weather Since my man and I together That's the voice of Lena Horne. She was a pioneering star of stage and screen in the 1940s and for decades after, and the epitome of black beauty and excellence at a time when Hollywood was loath to show either. The roles she accepted and those she refused helped change the game for black actors. Donald Bogle is a fan, film historian, and an educator at NYU and Penn. I was shocked. There were students who didn't really know her. And I just felt that, you know, something should be done. So Bogle wrote a book, Lena Horne, Goddess Reclaimed. He spoke with our co-host, Michelle Martin. Lena Horne came to Hollywood in the early 1940s, the period when the Second World War had broken out. And previously, roles for African-Americans in Hollywood movies, mostly they played comic servants. You had a lot of very talented people who played these roles. But there wasn't the idea of full-fledged stardom. Lena Horne comes, 
and MGM Studios, the most powerful of the Hollywood studios at that time, they decide that they're going to do something different with her, that she will not play the comic giggling maids. Why were they willing to do that? Well, because Louis B. Mayer, who was the head of MGM, he understood that. During the war, there were the black GIs going abroad to fight for freedoms of others, and they were going to be coming home where basic freedoms were denied to them in their own country. The idea was that that something different had to be done. Mm. And so this is why Lena Horne proved to be the right woman at the right time. But when it came time for her to go to MGM, she had her father come out yes. and negotiate it. Would you tell that story? She was in a situation where there were no African-Americans around to really advise her or in positions of power. And she contacted her father. He came there and he talked to Louis B. Mayer and he said he didn't want to see his daughter playing a maid in the movies. I'm sure that it, it was just sort of stunning. It's stunning to me to hear that this man comes and says to them, listen, my daughter's not going to be playing any maids, okay? I'm just like fascinated Well, he also that. said, according to Lena Horne, he uh -huh. said, you know, she wouldn't be playing maids and he would get her a maid of his own <laughs> if this was the case. And Lena said, well, of course, he was just jiving. But her father knew what to say. There's a story in the book about how MGM's hair and makeup department didn't really know what to do with her. But you tell a story about how the head hairdresser. Yes, Sidney Gilleroff. Wouldn't, some of his underlings would not touch her hair. So he wound yeah. up doing her hair himself. No one would touch her head. No one. And he said that he could not be with her every day on set. And so he, he hired a black woman to style her hair. And this is significant as well. But I should add this about her at MGM with the inroads that she made. She still had these problems. Mm -hmm. MGM put her in musical segments of films that starred whites. Hmm. She would do her number, then disappear from the movie. And this really frustrated her because she really wanted to play roles. And was that to make it easier for the Southern theaters to cut her out? Precisely. As the war progressed, Lena Horne entertained at army bases, and she really wanted to reach the Black troops, the Negro troops. Many of them told her that in the South, when her films were shown and posters outside of theaters and so forth, would have her on, and she wouldn't be in the film. And so local censors apparently cut her out, but the scenes were constructed in such a way that the musical segments could easily be cut out. Oh, listen, sister, I love my Mr. Man, and I can't tell you why. Her final disillusionment with Hollywood was that Lena Horne appeared in a movie called Till the Clouds Roll By. She performed numbers from the musical Showboat. It must be something that the angels done plan. And Showboat had a character, Julie, who was passing for white. She was a mulatto. Mm -hmm. And then her racial identity is revealed and she's expelled from the showboat. 
They were remaking it in the early 50s. And Lena Horne had done this thing until the clouds rolled by, which I think she thought was like a screen test and that she would get the role in the remake. And they didn't give it to her. Mm. The, the role went to Ava Gardner, whose wife, oh, wow. who was a good friend of Lena Horne. Yeah, but still. And yes, but still. Yeah. This was part of the thing that just ate at her. How do you want people to think about her now? I um, I want to mention that she died in 2010 at the age of 92. She she performed for a very long time, like in nightclubs, and she had like one-woman shows. In fact, I actually got a chance to see her in one of those shows. So she managed to really create a long career for herself. But is there something that you're hoping this book will do to restore Lena Horne to prominence or something like that? The idea was to make people see a, a struggle someone might have had and then to see the ultimate triumph. And a person who had a certain confidence and determination to make a statement to the world through her work. And so I would want people to see that and, and to see the films and find pleasure in, in them. I mean, that's quite significant. That is award-winning film historian Donald Bogle. His latest book, Lena Horne, Goddess Reclaimed, is out now. Donald Bogle, thanks so much for talking to us. Michelle, thank you. I like the feeling, but never come late. I never bother with people I hate. That's why the lady is a tramp. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a look back at the history of Halloween in Massachusetts, which often involved chaos and mayhem. It's 7.29. Listeners have the opportunity to attend open meetings of the WBUR Board of Directors and the Community Advisory Board. If you'd like information about attending, please visit WBUR.org slash open meetings. That's WBUR.org slash open meetings. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. Benjamin Zander leads Wagner, Hindemith, and Brahms this Sunday, November 5th. BostonPhil.org. And Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at SolarGardensMA.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The United Nations Security Council held another emergency session on Monday to address the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield says the lives of humanitarian workers and all civilians, both Israeli and Palestinian, must be protected. The lives of all civilians, innocent civilians, Israeli and Palestinians, men and women, children and elderly, must be protected. Greenfield also urged the U.N. to call for the immediate and unconditional release of all hostages being held by Hamas. The U.S. government's major antitrust case against Google is now two months in. The Justice Department has laid out its case. Now it's Google's turn. NPR's Derek Herr reports one of the first witnesses called to testify was the tech company's CEO. 
Sundar Pichai has been at Google for nearly 20 years, and now he's the CEO of both Google and its parent company, Alphabet. He has a long history working with Google's search engine business, which was the meat of his testimony. What we've learned over the course of the trial is that Google has made deals with all sorts of companies to ensure that its search engine is the default on computers and phones. That's NPR's Derek Kerr reporting. This is NPR News in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A progressive Jewish group is resigning from the Jewish Community Relations Council of Greater Boston. That's after the group Boston Workers Circle attended a rally calling on Senator Elizabeth Warren to support a ceasefire in Gaza earlier this month. The JCRC says that rally was put on by an anti-Zionist organization. It says its members are not allowed to partner with those groups. The Workers' Circle was one of 16 Jewish organizations that founded the Jewish Relations Council. Massachusetts will provide more than 1,000 families with housing vouchers. State officials say the 1,200 vouchers will go to families already in temporary shelters. They can be spent on alternative housing options. Officials say that'll free up much-needed space in the state shelters, which are expected to reach capacity soon. Communities in Massachusetts could soon be getting a slice of the state's online sales tax revenue. Lawmakers on Beacon Hill are considering a bill that would set aside 5 percent of that online sales tax revenue for a newly created downtown vitality fund. The money would support grants for Main Street or associations and state-designated cultural districts. A group of historians and descendants wants to clear the names of hundreds of people executed or accused of witchcraft in Massachusetts. The Massachusetts Witch Hunt Justice Project tells the Boston Globe it wants the state to acknowledge its history. That includes clearing accusations of witchcraft besides those made in the Salem Witch Trials. Similar efforts are underway in other New England states. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. It was another win for the Celtics last night. They beat the Wizards on the road in D.C. by 19 points. Final score was 126 to 107. That puts the season an undefeated 3 and 0 to start the season. They have tonight off, but will return to the Garden to play the Indiana Pacers tomorrow. The Bruins had a thrilling win on home ice last night. They came back from a two-point deficit to defeat the Florida Panthers in overtime. Final score was 3 to 2. Clear skies with highs near 50 today. Clouds move in tonight and it'll fall to the upper 30s, so bundle up if you're heading out to trick-or-treat. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with highs in the mid-40s and a chance of showers. It's 40 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways. In Select Theaters Friday, everywhere November 10th. From Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. Good morning. The Food and Drug Administration convenes a panel of advisors today to consider a potentially historic advance, the first medical treatment that uses a revolutionary gene editing technique. The treatment would be the first genetic therapy for sickle cell disease, a devastating blood disorder. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now to talk about this. Hi, Rob. Good morning. Good morning. So it sounds like today could be a landmark day for both the field of gene editing and for sickle cell patients. Can we start with a reminder first, though, of what sickle cell disease is exactly? Sure. Sickle cell is an awful disorder caused by a genetic defect that turns healthy red blood cells into deformed sickle-shaped cells. Those misshapen cells clog up blood vessels, causing unpredictable attacks of excruciating pain that damage vital organs. Most patients don't live past their 40s or 50s. It disproportionately affects people of African descent, and that includes millions of people around the world, including about 100,000 in the U.S. You might remember that NPR has had exclusive access to chronicle the experience of one sickle cell patient over the last four years or so, Victoria Gray from Forest, Mississippi. And here's how she described what it's like to live with sickle cell when I spoke with her again recently. My life was filled with pain, hospital stays. I really couldn't care for myself or my family. Couldn't walk, couldn't feed myself, couldn't get out of bed. Living with sickle cell disease is terrible. Victoria was the first patient with sickle cell to receive the experimental gene editing treatment. So what did it do for Victoria? I mean, how does this treatment work? So doctors removed cells from Victoria's bone marrow and used the gene editing technique called CRISPR to edit the DNA in those cells and then infused billions of the modified cells back into her body so the edited cells could start producing a healthy form of an oxygen-carrying protein sickle cell patients need called hemoglobin. And it appears to have worked. All of Victoria's symptoms have disappeared and she's been able to do things she's never been able to do before, like work, full-time, travel, spend more time with their family. Here's Victoria again. She's now 38. My kids, they don't have to worry about the possibility of them waking up, I'm going away at the hospital, or even worse, me being dead. My son used to wake up just to see if I was alive. It's a huge life change. And she's not alone. At today's meeting, the FDA advisors will hear that the treatment appears to have worked for almost all the sickle cell patients who have had their cells edited so far. The FDA is expected to make a decision by December 8th, and if it's approved, the treatment would be the first gene editing treatment to become widely available. I mean, this sounds so life-changing listening to Victoria, but are there concerns about the treatment? Well, it's not an easy treatment to go through. It requires essentially a bone marrow transplant. That said, so far it looks safe, but FDA scientists are concerned that more research may be needed to make sure that gene editing is not making mistakes that could cause long-term health problems. Researchers are planning to follow Victoria and other patients for 15 years to see if it keeps working, doesn't cause any unexpected side effects down the road, and actually helps patients live longer. But the FDA advisors will debate whether Vertex, the company that makes it, treatment needs to do more research to make sure the editing isn't making dangerous DNA mutations accidentally. And you know, another big issue is the price tag. It's expected to be very expensive, probably millions of dollars per patient, and it's very complicated. So the worry is that many patients who need it in this country, and especially in low-income countries where sickle cell is most common, just won't be able to get it. That's NPR's health correspondent, Rob Stein. Thank you, Rob. Sure thing.
Hurricane Otis became the most powerful hurricane to make landfall in Mexico's recorded history. The tropical storm grew into a Category 5 hurricane just hours before landfall, and it caught an entire region by surprise and left stunning devastation. Now, so far, dozens of people are known to be dead, and dozens more are still missing. And while the government ramps up its response, NPR's Eder Peralta reports on the people trying to pick up the pieces. Renal Rucci sits staring blankly at the Acapulco Bay in front of him. Everything around him is destroyed. The supermarkets, the hotels, the gas stations, they crumbled like paper. And the dozens of boats that usually float in this bay, they're gone. My friends are gone. Quite a few of them are gone now. All the fishermen he hangs out with are missing. Rucci splits his time between Canada and Mexico. You have to be here, he says to understand what really happened. He couldn't save his two dogs. I was holding on to those metal posts in my windows just because we live above. And uh, my dogs just were just lying in the sofa and the furniture and the fridge. And I don't know. I don't know. It was uh, quite the experience. And as we talk, rescue workers on the bay pull out one more body. They lay it on the beach next to another body discovered earlier. They cover it with a green and red tarp, and a dreadful ritual begins. Families looking for missing loved ones surround the body. Detectives lift the tarp to reveal an already putrefied corpse. The family members cry, hold t-shirts over their face for the smell the shock. One woman says he's a little darker than her brother. Olivia Durancelaya realizes quickly it is not his 25-year-old nephew who stayed on his boat the night of the hurricane. He was guarding his livelihood. I imagine they thought the hurricane wouldn't be bad, he says. He looks at the two bodies again. It's been three or four days, he says. There's no hope he's alive. Across the city, this is what we find. People wandering the streets aimlessly, trying to figure out what just happened. They stand in front of hospitals. They wave their phones at the sky, hoping for signal. I find Antonia Hernandez carrying a bag of juices that she has just taken from a supermarket. And as soon as we make eye contact, she cries. You should have seen my house, she says. It was chaos. Everything was thrown about. Everything was floating. We walk together, and it seems everyone is looting. Everything is caked in mud. Massive trees are twisted around cars. Hernandez's neighbors are all standing outside in awe of the disaster, in awe that they've survived. Pero mire, estamos vivos. But look, we're alive, Ana Laura Dominguez says. Nosotros estamos vivos, gracias a Dios. Allá arriba. We're alive, thanks to God, she says. Up there, people drowned. But we are alive. Ada Peralta, NPR News, Acapulco, Mexico. This is NPR News. 
Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is rejecting calls for a ceasefire as his government's ground forces push deeper into Gaza. But experts say Israel's overall military strategy remains unclear. Sunny and upper 40s today, increasing clouds tonight, along with temperatures in the upper 30s. Then for the first day of November, tomorrow, mostly overcast in the mid-40s with a chance for rain. It's 40 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. Oceanstatejoblot.com. Employees at some Rhode Island-based CVS, Walgreens, and Rite Aid locations walked off the job this week. It's part of a three-day walkout to encourage executives to hire more people and improve working conditions. It's unclear how many pharmacies are participating in the strike. Company officials tell the Boston Globe they're working to improve conditions. Another downtown Boston office building is selling at a discounted rate. The building on Lincoln Street in the Leather District sold for $11 million. That's just over half of what it was sold for in 2015. The new owner says it does not plan to convert the building into residential units. A popular chicken tender restaurant plans to open a new location in Massachusetts next year. Raising Cane's tells Mass Live it's opening in Saugus. It's unclear when exactly the restaurant will open. This will be the company's fifth location in the state. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by German International School Boston. Learn about their German holiday market on December 9th and upcoming admissions events at gisbos.org. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Hordes of costume kids will parade through neighborhoods today asking politely for treats. But before trick-or-treating became the Halloween tradition, pandemonium ruled the day. WBUR's Andrea Shea produced an audio time capsule with candy historian Susan Benjamin. They'll take us back to when masked kids created Halloween mayhem across Massachusetts. I really wanted to get to the bottom of Halloween because everybody's always asking me, trick or treat, when did that start? What was the candy they ate? So what I did is I went to the best place possible, which were the newspapers going all the way back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, focusing on all the various parts of Boston. What I found was reporting that went everywhere from like hysteria to humor, to fears. And what's really funny about it, and sort of disturbing too, is that all these antics were happening with kids who just raged through the streets, and as the reporters tell us, did untold amounts of damage. Winthrop, November 1st. The spirit of Halloween ran riot through the town last night, gripping young and old alike, propelling them onto fun and mischief. The little boys, and big ones too, cut up something terrible and kept the police on the jump. In Boston, kids dressed in costumes were running through office buildings and stores. And in Cambridge, a bunch of kids somehow got hold of a giant moose and led it down the streets with great hilarity. 
The other thing that they reported happening was fires everywhere. In the countryside, barns were set on fire. In the city, there were fires in playgrounds. That's when the newspapers shifted gears and started talking about the importance of change coming around and really interestingly focusing on what individual towns were doing to make sure that the kids had some place to go and would stop disturbing all the rest of community life. For example, we have things like the town of Concord, which this is a little bit strange. They had rat chasing events where kids, yes, kids, caught rats, probably to keep the rat population down. The Cambridge Fire Department, meanwhile, they were pretty smart about this. They enlisted Boy Scouts to stop kids from pulling the alarms. And then there were parties. The weirdness of Halloween has been enclosed in safer spooks. There are parties everywhere. Children's parties, grown-ups parties, parties where the old-time bobbing for apples, the candy twists, the dark trips through the cellar, the goblin appearances provide the entertainment. But the parties had a downside. Somebody had to host them. Then trick-or-treating came around. That started around the 1940s, although reporters did indicate that there was trick-or-treating in Wellesley in the 1920s as well. It didn't really take off until the 1940s because of packaging. And now, candy makers everywhere could give a boost to their sales by packaging little hand-sized candy bags. People could stay home, give the kids candy in the bags, very nice, very neat, very orderly, and then they would go home and they would go through this stash and the streets would be relatively empty. So when you think of Halloween these days and you see these little patrols of kids going up and down the street eagerly getting candy, feel good about it. It could be worse. You could have your garden overthrown or you could have a fire in the lot behind your house. Happy Halloween, everybody. Boys and girls of every age. That's candy historian Susan Benjamin. Our story was produced by W.B. Moore's Andrea Shea. Coming up at 8.25 on WBMR's Morning Edition, we look at the state of the race to be the Republican nominee for president. Donald Trump is still the front runner, with the Iowa caucuses less than three months away. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Circle Furniture, with their upholstery event through October. Hundreds of sofa, sectional, and chair styles in sustainably sourced fabrics and leathers. CircleFurniture.com Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. 
So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Unsealed documents show the family members of the alleged Lewiston mass shooter expressed concern to law enforcement about his mental health weeks before the attack took place. House Republicans are looking to pass a roughly $14 billion aid package for Israel that the Senate and White House say does not include money for Ukraine. And about 4,000 people are being forced from their homes as a wildfire burns through land southeast of Los Angeles. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Near 50 today under sunny skies, upper 30s tonight, and it grows cloudy. There's a chance of showers tomorrow, otherwise mostly cloudy and in the mid-40s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Layla Falden. On the Florida Keys, there's a species of deer that, even when they're at their biggest, they're only about the size of a golden retriever. They are, as my NPR colleague Nathan Rott describes them, stupid cute. (laughs) As Nate reports, these tiny endangered deer are raising huge questions like, how do you save a species whose only natural home is disappearing? The threat facing the key deer is easy to see from the water off of Big Pine Key, says Nikki Colangelo. In terms of being on the water and seeing it from the water and thinking about these small islands and imagining one foot, two feet, three feet of sea level rise and... It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much, yeah, because they're so low. Colangelo and her colleague Christian Eggleston work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And they say rapid sea level rise, driven by climate change, is putting everything on the Florida Keys at risk. Billions of dollars of infrastructure and homes, 31 federally protected plants and animals, many of which Eggleston says live only here. So it's not just key deer. All the coastal species across the U.S. are facing similar challenges. Habitat loss is the largest cause of extinction on the planet. Agriculture, logging, development, three quarters of the planet's land has been altered by human hands. Human-caused climate change is now altering the rest. Roads are underwater, different things are being eroded away, and we're watching islands disappear. For federal wildlife managers like Eggleston and Colangelo, whose job is to keep species alive, this raises an almost existential crisis. Because the options range from giving up and letting a species go extinct to doing absolutely everything you can and putting animals in zoos or... Or moving plants and animals to new places where they haven't lived before, like higher ground. I don't want any species to go extinct on my watch, you know? I don't think any of us do. I mean, and but where is society on that? Colangelo asks because some of the options available can be controversial. For example, if you move a species, how do you know it won't become invasive or a problem in the new habitat you put it in? Will the people who live there want it? There needs to be political support. There needs to be societal support. The sad irony for those who've worked to preserve the key deer is that it's a species they've already saved. As recently as the 1950s, there were only a few dozen key deer left on the planet. In the keys of southern Florida, 
the tiny, elusive key deer were found to be facing extinction from overhunting, land development, hurricanes, and fires. Conservation efforts from private groups, individuals, and eventually the federal government helped stop the bleeding. The key deer was one of the first species protected under the Endangered Species Act, which became law 50 years ago. Today, the deer are so prevalent on Big Pine Key that residents have to protect their gardens with short fencing. All right, so here's deer. <laughs> Just a few of them. Hey, guys. Valerie Preziosi lives on a skinny band of land south of Big Pine Key. There are like eight deer lounging in her yard. So this first little one here, she still has a little bit of dots. Preziosi is the founder and president of a local nonprofit called Save Our Key Deer. Inside her home, pictures of the little ungulates decorate just about every wall of her living room. Basically, they're like people's dogs. They're like pets because you see them every day. Come home from work, there they are. People have names for them. Partly, she says, because the deer has already lost so much natural habitat from development and sea level rise. They're basically forced to live on our properties. An estimated 2% of the key deer's preferred habitat still exists on Florida's urbanized southern tip. That's because the habitat, which exists only here, is typically found at higher elevations where people like to build and where the salt water can't reach. Where the pine trees grow, that's where the fresh water is. Chris Berg is with the Nature Conservancy. I met him a few hundred yards from his pine-surrounded house on Big Pine Key, closer to the ocean in what he describes as a denuded transition zone. You can see dead pine trees here. You can see dead palms. Sun-bleached snags stabbing out of a soggy, soupy earth. And these are, you know, these are hardy plants, but they need fresh water. And the sea is coming in, unfortunately, faster and faster over time. And for Berg, who spent most of his adult life trying to protect the Keys' imperiled species, seeing this shift has been sobering, and it's raising uncomfortable questions for him, too. At what amount of sea level rise do we need to pull the trigger on adaptation choices? Like, do we give up, or do we move them, or do we, what do we do? The questions, Berg says, are as much about human values as they are about logistics. If you move key deer to a whole series of zoos, like you know, people have done with pandas and, you know, you name it, endangered species. You can do that. You can keep them going. But at what cost and to what end? You know, is that really a, a future for the species? We have always looked at the Endangered Species Act as creatively and flexibly as we can. Martha Williams directs the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the federal agency that will ultimately make the decision about what to do with the key deer. She says the Biden administration has proposed new rules to help species like the key deer by allowing wildlife managers to move plants and animals. In some place that it wasn't its historic habitat, but might be just the habitat it needs to survive into the future. Because what we're seeing with climate is it's moving the suitable habitat for some species. So if we're really committed to conserving, especially a species like the key deer, you know, that's ridiculously cute, then we've got to be thinking about all of the tools we can use. Williams says federal wildlife managers don't plan to move the key deer in the immediate future, though she won't rule it out in the long term. On Big Pine Key, Berg says regardless of what happens with his home's namesake deer, there is a lesson to be learned here. Really reducing the root causes of climate change is the only thing that's going to prevent the problem that we're experiencing in the Keys now from 
you know, metastasizing across the globe. Doing that will require reducing fossil fuel use globally in a short window of time, a challenge that makes the decisions around the key deer seem as small as the species itself. Nathan Rott, NPR News, the Florida Keys. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. I'm executive editor for news Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is rejecting calls for a ceasefire in Gaza, despite UN claims that millions of Palestinian lives are at stake. It's Tuesday, October 31st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, there's bipartisan support for a $14 billion emergency aid package for Israel. This is a moment for swift and decisive action prevent further loss of life. And the U.S. Supreme Court today considers whether public officials can block critics from their social media. Plus, Massachusetts is introducing a wait list for some families seeking shelter, but families already left out of the shelter system often face dire situations. Conditions with mice, bedbugs, and roaches, that's, that's become a norm. Celtics and Bruins win. Sunny in upper 40s today, cloudy in upper 30s for trick-or-treating tonight. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Israeli ground forces are pressing ahead with an offensive and are nearing Gaza City, the largest urban center in the Gaza Strip. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the Israeli military is also pounding the territory with airstrikes. Israel is providing only snippets of information about its military operation. But combined Israeli and Palestinian accounts indicate Israeli ground troops are pushing deeper into the territory from the north and the east and are approaching Gaza City. Israel says it's confronting and killing Hamas fighters, while Hamas says it's inflicting casualties and forcing the Israelis to retreat in some cases. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is rejecting calls for a ceasefire, saying, quote, this is a time for war. Israeli airstrikes are ongoing throughout Gaza, including the south, where huge numbers of Palestinians have sought shelter. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Antony Blinken head to Capitol Hill today to urge lawmakers to approve more aid to Israel and Ukraine to help them defend themselves. They're to testify before the Senate Appropriations Committee. Republican leaders in the House propose sending $14 billion to Israel, but nothing extra to Ukraine. The Biden administration says helping both countries fight aggression is necessary for the national security of the U.S. 
President Biden is praising the tentative contracts reached between Detroit automakers and the United Auto Workers Union. These agreements ensure the iconic big three can still lead the world in quality and innovation. The union announced yesterday it had settled with General Motors, the last of the big three, to come to an agreement. The deal is similar to those reached with Ford and Stellantis, which includes a 25% raise over four and a half years, as well as cost of living increases. Union members are expected back at work in the coming days while they vote on the agreements. The White House is announcing new actions it says will protect Americans saving for retirement. NPR's Mara Liason has more on the story. The idea of the new reforms is to get rid of junk fees, extra costs that investment advisors charge to investors. Those extra costs can add up to as much as 20% of an individual's retirement savings. National Economic Council Director Lael Brainerd says the new rules are part of President Biden's commitment to helping the middle class. The president knows how it feels for a family to sit around the kitchen table each month deciding which bills to pay, in what order, and how much to set aside to save for retirement. The new rule also closes loopholes so that investment advisors' recommendations must be in the saver's best financial interest. Mara Liason, NPR News, The White House. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The U.S. military alerted the local sheriff's office to mental health concerns about Lewiston, Maine shooter Robert Card as recently as this fall. That's according to documents obtained by the Boston Globe. According to a letter sent to the sheriff's office, colleagues in the U.S. Army Reserve raised concerns that Card would commit a mass shooting. Documents also show his family raised concerns with law enforcement this spring. Officials say Card killed 18 people and wounded 13 in shootings last week. There will be an emergency hearing today to challenge Governor Healy's cap on the emergency shelter system. The Lawyers for Civil Rights filed a lawsuit against the administration last week. The group says the governor is going against Massachusetts's right-to-shelter law by placing a cap on the number of families the state can accept. It's asking a judge for a restraining order that would prevent the cap's enforcement. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering a bill that would increase funding for rural schools. Alden Bourne explains. The bill would implement the findings of a state commission on rural schools by providing $60 million to them and increasing funding for expenses like transportation. Alexis Batra, a Spanish teacher at Gateway Regional High School in Huntington, told legislators the need is urgent. We are losing students who believe that school is a waste of time and they check out or they rebel. They don't see a place for themselves in a system that can't offer them the programs to gain the skills and training they want and need. The state budget now under consideration would provide $15 million for rural schools, a quarter of what the bill's proponents are seeking. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Beacon Hill lawmakers are rewriting a bill expanding e-book access to comply with federal law. The bill would change licensing agreements between book publishers and public libraries. A similar bill in Maryland was deemed unconstitutional. Massachusetts librarians say they do not believe a new version of the state bill violates law. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Innuendo and Natick, with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com.
A two-goal deficit couldn't stop the Bruins from a comeback yesterday. They beat the Florida Panthers 3-2 in overtime. The Celtics remain undefeated to start the season. They beat the Washington Wizards last night on the road by 19 points. Final score was 126-107. They have the night off, but will host the Indiana Pacers tomorrow night. Sunny and breezy today. Temperatures will reach the upper 40s. Tonight, trick-or-treaters will want to bundle up. Clouds will move in, and temperatures will dip into the mid to upper 30s. There's a slight chance of rain overnight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and breezy with a chance of rain. Temperatures will rise into the mid-40s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Despite international calls for a humanitarian pause, Israel has been bombing Gaza for 24 days straight now, and the assault is intensifying. Yeah, there's no sign the bombardments in response to a Hamas attack that killed at least 1,400 people in Israel, and saw fighters take upward of 200 hostages will end anytime soon. Here's Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu speaking to the foreign press. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. In Gaza, more than 8,300 people have been killed. Some 70 percent of the dead are women and children, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Entire neighborhood blocks have been reduced to rubble and people are trapped with no way out. Meanwhile, the overall strategy of this war or how the expanding operation will unfold is still unclear. But some clues may actually lie in U.S. military thinking. For more on this, we're joined by Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman. Tom, we've seen some tanks uh, moving into Gaza. Doesn't look like a full-scale invasion, so what would it be then? What is it? Well, you know, at this point, it looks more surgical. The Israelis first mounted, of course, massive air and missile strikes, then moved into Gaza with small numbers of infantry troops supported by tanks and bulldozers. We've seen the Israeli videos of all this. They grabbed a foothold, then moved on from there. And, of course, the Israelis got some advice from an American Marine, Lieutenant General Jim Glenn, who's well acquainted with urban warfare from his days in Iraq. So what does Israel's strategy, what we've seen so far of it, uh, compare to past examples of urban warfare? Well, you know, it does kind of mirror past examples. Uh, since General Glenn was in the mix, I thumbed through the Marines' manual. It's called Military Operations in Urbanized Terrain over the weekend, a little light reading. And that manual kind of mirrors, again, what we've seen so far in Gaza. The element of surprise, so you roll in at night as they did, special assault teams with tanks and combat engineers to destroy obstacles or booby traps. Also, we've seen the bulldozers to clear away debris. You want to isolate your enemy and then move on to your objectives. Now, Israel claimed it's making targeted strikes on Hamas in Gaza, but it's unclear what their strategy is. So, Tom, what have you heard about what Israel's objectives are? Well, I spoke with retired Marine General Frank McKenzie about all that. He commanded the U.S. forces in the Middle East, and he said the objectives would likely be Hamas command posts, ammunition dumps, and of course the hostages who are likely being kept in that web of tunnels. The Israelis have said there are even more hostages than they initially thought. Now the number is 240, with as many as 10 Americans among them. 
He said the Israeli foothold will only expand and multiply using overwhelming firepower from tanks, attack helicopters, other arms. And Tom, this massive ground invasion that we keep hearing is is going to happen. What have you heard about when it might happen? I mean, is that still possible at this point? No, most likely, you know, larger numbers of troops would move in, maybe to secure areas, search buildings. Israeli officials say this war will be long and difficult. And in this type of fight, defenders oftentimes have the upper hand. They know the streets, the high-rise buildings, also the tunnels. Now, in some urban fights, like the Marines battling insurgents in the Iraqi city of Fallujah back in 2004, they evacuated tens of thousands of civilians. We spoke with some of them last year, by the way. But in Gaza, civilians are trapped, including as many as 600 Americans. That's NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman. Tom, thanks. You're welcome. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today in a pair of important cases that test the ability of public officials to block critics from their personal social media pages. The cases echo issues raised in a now-defunct suit against then-President Donald Trump for blocking his critics on Twitter. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Kevin Linke is a frequent gadfly at the Port Huron government in Michigan. He sued the city manager, James Freed, because Freed blocked him from his personal Facebook page. Linke says he began posting comments on Freed's page at the beginning of the pandemic because he found information there that wasn't available elsewhere. Mr. Freed was using his page. He was putting out policy directives. He was issuing press statements. And this was the only place this information was being relayed to the communities. Freed said he's not an elected official, that this was his personal page, which he began in college. He says that he maintained the page at home on his personal computer and that the information for constituents that he put on the site had been made public previously through the city's communications office and local media. 80% of the posts are my personal family photos, pictures of my dog. I'm a foodie. I like to show pictures of where I go out to eat. I'm a public official in this line of work. It is not uncommon to have people with mental health challenges come after you. Had I thought for a moment that this page was public and that I didn't control it, I would never have posted photos of my little girls or my wife. The reference to people with mental health issues is not incidental. While Freed says he has no specific memory of Linky's posts on his page, he says he blocked Linky because of his aggressive behavior. And for a good chunk of this case, he was incarcerated for stalking individuals. Linky maintains that his incarcerations were related to his nine-year custody battle, and that regardless, his brushes with the law have had nothing to do with this case. He says he sued Freed for blocking his comments on what amounted to a government Facebook page. This has been an ongoing issue with Mr. Freed as far as blocking people, deleting them. He's been doing it for years and years. I'm the first person to actually challenge him on it. Linky has been involved in altercations with other public officials and even was carted out of a city council meeting. But lots of difficult people prevail in cases that test important constitutional principles. The issue at the Supreme Court today is how courts should evaluate these questions when they occur on a public official's allegedly personal social media page. 
Most appeals courts have ruled that when public officials create an online place for public comments, the First Amendment freedom of speech prevents those officials from barring people whose comments they don't like. But in this case, the appeals court ruled that city manager Freed's Facebook page was personal, that he did not use his government authority to maintain it, and that therefore he was not using his office to block Linky. In short, that he wasn't using the authority of the state to suppress Linky's speech. Local government associations have weighed in to note that government officials have First Amendment rights, too, and in weighing their rights against constituent rights in the social media age, the Supreme Court should set out a clear and easy-to-apply standard. Amanda Karras of the Municipal Lawyers Association sets out what she calls the authority test, which includes, among other things, If the government owns the social media account, if the government, by law or regulation, authorizes or requires the the creation of the social media account. Countering that argument in the Supreme Court today, Linky's lawyer, Alon Kedem, will argue that when public officials invoke the trappings of their office on social media, they cannot suppress the speech of their critics. One of the key aspects of this case is that Mr. Freed was talking to the public as a city manager, essentially performing his job by answering their questions about the services that the city was providing. If all of this sounds familiar, that's because when Donald Trump was president, he used his personal Twitter account to communicate with the public and blocked his critics. Two lower courts ruled that illegal before he left office. City manager Freed maintains his case is entirely different. No city staff ever had access to my account, whereas in the Donald Trump case, White House staff was accessing and posting on an official federal devices had access to the page. Alon Kedem, Linky's lawyer, says those are distinctions without a difference, that the Linky case and the Trump case are the same, and in fact that the Linky case is perhaps more important. To a lot of people in the country, the city manager of their town makes decisions that have a lot more direct effect on their lives and the lives of their family than the president. And they want to have a way to communicate with the city manager. So the question here is just, do they get that chance? A decision in the case is expected by summer. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. The stories seem as old as trick-or-treating itself. Tales of razor blades and apples or drugs disguised as Halloween handouts, treats that have been supposedly tampered with. Some people think it's fun to play tricks with your treats. This is a Halloween safety public service announcement from 1985. Watch out for things that look like candy, but might be medicines or drugs or even poisons. This is absolutely a legend. It's not a particularly great legend. That's Joel Best. He's a professor of sociology and criminal justice at the University of Delaware, and he's doing important work. He's been studying decades of claims about contaminated candy. I have data going back to 1958, and I have yet to find a report of a child that's been killed or seriously hurt by a contaminated treat picked up in the course of trick-or-treating. There was one case in the 1970s where a father poisoned his son's candy, candy that he later claimed came from his son's trick-or-treat loot. At the time, the story had parents panicking. Now, I don't count that because when people say to me, um, do I have to worry about my kid going trick-or-treating, they aren't asking me, should I worry that I'm going to kill my own kid? Best research encompassed claims of tainted candy from a stranger. None of these turn out to have been the real deal. 
And in one case, a girl with a heart condition died while trick-or-treating. News reports at the time suggested she died because of contaminated candy. Later, evidence concluded the girl died of natural causes. And there have been a couple other cases like that. So if there's no strong evidence to back it up, why are people still afraid their kids' candy might be tampered with? We have the sense that the future is uncertain, and how can we control it? And one of the ways that we do this is we become very concerned about the safety of children. So phew, you can steal the kids, I mean, let the kids have their candy. This is NPR News. Good morning. You're starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, President Biden's plan to send emergency military aid to Israel has bipartisan support in the U.S. Senate. We'll look at what the $14 billion package includes. It's 819. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. It's spooky season, which means there is no better time to curl up on the couch and binge this year's scariest movies. You want that scare when you're in the moment, and you want it to kind of stick to your bones for a little bit afterwards. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, horror scholar and filmmaker Rebecca McKendry talks us through the year's biggest scares on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Sunny, a bit windy, and a high near 50 today. It'll grow cloudy and fall into the upper 30s for trick-or-treating tonight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high near 45. There's a slight chance of rain. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR this Halloween morning. We're following the latest from Israel. One family searched for emergency housing in Massachusetts and the state of the Iowa caucuses. Stay with us. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Participant with the new film Radical, based on the true story of a middle school teacher in an impoverished town in Mexico who tries a new method of unlocking his students' potential, starring Eugenio Derbez in Theaters Friday. From Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com slash wilderness. From National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Now to Iowa, where less than three months from now, Republican voters will pick from a narrowing field in the first presidential nominating contest of 2024. Former Vice President Mike Pence is no longer a contender. He suspended his presidential bid. And the candidate whose ticket he joined in 2016 seems to have a lock on winning the caucuses. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters takes us to the campaign trail. A group of Iowans munch on pizza and fried chicken while they wait for Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy at a pizza ranch restaurant in suburban Des Moines. Polk County Republican Party Chair Gloria Mazza takes the mic first. How many of you are planning on caucusing? I better see all the hands. All the hands. Come on. (laughs) Not every hand goes up. She reminds the Saturday night crowd caucuses are not like a primary election. You will not caucus in your normal polling place. It will be in a gymnasium, an auditorium, a business. Uh, We're looking at sites all over. We have almost all of them done. Voters have to be motivated enough to show up for their candidate on caucus night. Republicans have to wait around to hear speeches before they fill out their secret ballot. Most potential Iowa caucus goers feel like this year's contest is already settled, says David Peterson, a political science professor at Iowa State University who has recent poll data. Amongst our respondents, it sure seems like they all believe Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. And so at some point it makes sense. If that's what's going to happen, why bother? Why bother paying attention? Why bother showing up on a cold January night when you know what the outcome is? Caucuses have a way of surprising people. That's why South Carolina Senator Tim Scott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis moved most of their resources to Iowa. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is spending more time in the Hawkeye State, too. Marty Scharf drove around 40 miles to see her speak in Cedar Rapids. I don't think Trump's that far ahead. I think somebody like Nikki's got a chance. I really do. Scharf had been thinking about supporting DeSantis, but not anymore. You know, I don't know if I can really put my finger on it, but... But listening to him speak, sometimes I feel he's, he needs to smile, he's forcing it. As DeSantis tries to visit all 99 counties, he is finding a crowd. His message speaks to Jeff Schneider, who came to see him speak in Council Bluffs. Schneider, a truck driver, says he'll always be a huge Trump fan, but wants him to move on from the 2020 election. Think about what you can do for the country ahead of us, not what happened behind us, man. It's gone, let it go, you know? We, we just need to hear some new stuff, new ideas from him. It's repetitive and it's, it's getting old. Lynette Peterson also wants to move on from Trump. I voted for him before, and I think our country was in an amazing position under his leadership. But I just think that with him may come a lot of uh, distractions. While those distractions include four looming criminal cases and dozens of charges in four different jurisdictions, Republican caucus goers really don't bring that up much, except to defend the former president. Instead, they're talking about things like immigration, the Israel-Hamas war, and inflation. Trump's bringing those things up as he campaigns more in the state. They don't want a repeat of 2016 when he came in second in the caucuses. This is what wins. shirts won't win. This will win. A Trump volunteer hands out commit to caucus cards as he works a rally crowd. Zach Schmitz takes one. He says he'll scan the QR code and check it out. I'm here to learn more, so see it more in person as opposed to just what pops up on social media. The restaurant manager is here with his wife, Leah, who works in sales, both of them decked out in Trump hats. Well, we voted for him in 2016, 2020, and I've always been on the Trump train. 
There are a lot of devoted Trump fans here who plan to show up for him, like Tim Crockenfels. He can't wait to caucus for Trump again. I think DeSantis should have waited. Um, sp I spoke to uh, DeSantis and Vivek um, and had really good conversations with both of them. But th where they stand in Republic, as far as the party, totally agree with them. But I think there is, it's going to be a landslide, honestly. Um, and then every other name under that is not even worth mentioning right now. A not-too-distant second place might count as a win on January 15th for those other Republicans if there's any chance of taking on Trump for the nomination. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines. TV shows and movies for and about love-struck teenagers have long been a mainstay of the entertainment business. But as NPR's Chloe Veltman reports, a new UCLA study suggests Gen Z is far more interested in seeing screen stories about platonic relationships than those featuring sex and romance. UCLA asked more than 1,000 13 to 24-year-olds to participate in its Romance or Nomance study. In an online video accompanying the findings, Anna, age 16, and 20-year-old Joseph say they're over watching people get hot and heavy on screen. When there's media that has too much sex, me and my friends often feel uncomfortable. My friends and I maybe awkwardly bear through it. More than half of the study participants, including Anna, say they'd much rather see content focused on platonic attachments. I'd love to see some great love stories on friendships and the trials and tribulations of that. And nearly 40% of respondents say they'd like more stories featuring asexual characters. Because their stories deserve to be told as well. It's not that young people aren't interested in TV or movies and other media with sexual content. That's Yelda Ulls. She's the founder of UCLA's Center for Scholars and Storytellers, which conducted the study. It's that they actually want to see more in different kinds of relationships. All says the study didn't include questions about whether the kids look beyond TV, movies and social media for sexual content, for example, by visiting porn sites on the Internet. Perhaps the prevalence of porn could be a reason why they feel that they want to see less sexual content in more traditional media. In the study, Alt and her team say Gen Z's chaste entertainment preferences might also be a reaction to the isolation of the pandemic years, making them crave feel-good character relationships. Like, for example, the sweetly celibate nomance at the heart of this summer's biggest blockbuster. Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! It could be that Hollywood is already starting to grasp young people's aversion to all of that on-screen bumping and grinding. The highest-grossing films of the year so far... Barbie, the Super Mario Brothers movie, and Oppenheimer can hardly be classified as hotbeds of sex and romance. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. There's a court hearing today to stop the state from imposing a cap on the number of families in the shelter system. We'll look at what families already left out of the shelter system face. It's 829. After seeing news alerts all day, it's hard sometimes to understand the full story. Get the WBUR mobile app and we'll be there with context and perspective live. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, offering an upholstery event through October. You can work with interior designers to create a new, healthy look for your home. CircleFurniture.com. 
UMass Chan Medical School, advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu together. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza is getting worse by the day, prompting demands for a ceasefire. The U.N. General Assembly voted in favor of a resolution that called for a humanitarian truce, but the U.S. and Israel, along with 12 other countries, voted no. Riyad Mansour, the Palestinian ambassador to the U.N., says the council has a responsibility to maintain international peace and security. It is the duty of everyone, especially the United Nations and specifically the Security Council, to do everything that they can to have a ceasefire. More than two million civilians in Gaza have been scrambling to find food, water and other basic necessities since the war broke out more than three weeks ago. The Federal Reserve will kick off two days of meetings today. Steve Beckner reports the central bank is expected to keep interest rates unchanged for now. After raising the federal funds rate by five and a quarter percentage points, the Fed held that key short-term rate steady in September. Analysts think the Fed will extend its rate pause this week, but with inflation still well above its 2 percent target and unemployment low, Chairman Jerome Powell may leave the door open to future rate hikes. Steve Beckner reporting. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts family trapped in Gaza says they've run out of drinking water as violence in the region escalates. The Medway family includes two parents and their one-year-old son. They've been stuck in the region for nearly a month. The family tells the Boston Globe they're in touch with the U.S. government but have little information about getting out. Food, water and energy shortages are causing a growing humanitarian crisis in the region. The Boston City Council is set to vote this week on a resolution celebrating Veterans Day. The Boston Herald reports the resolution is an effort by some counselors to repair the group's relationship with former military members. Last fiscal year, the council voted to cut nearly $1 million in programming largely serving veterans. That cut was vetoed, but not before veterans groups criticized the move. A new plan could introduce red light cameras in some Massachusetts communities. The bill would allow cameras on traffic lights to monitor for certain violations. Those include failing to stop at a red light or blocking an intersection. It would be part of a pilot program that would begin in up to 10 communities in the state. The bill would only allow the back license plates of an offending vehicle to be photographed. That's to prevent racial profiling. Advocates say the plan would help reduce dangerous driving behavior. A group of Massachusetts cannabis business owners is suing the federal government over the categorization of cannabis as an illegal controlled substance. The group says putting marijuana in the same class as heroin and LSD harms their businesses. The lawsuit argues federal law should not be enforceable in state-regulated business. The companies tell the Boston Business Journal they want to be treated like other small businesses. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books. Patricia Cornwell presents Unnatural Death, a Scarpetta novel, at First Parish Church, November 28th. Tickets at portersquarebooks.com. 
The Celtics are celebrating another victory. They defeated the Washington Wizards last night, 126-107. That gives the Seas a 3-0 start to their season. They have the night off before returning to the Garden tomorrow to host the Indiana Pacers. And the Bruins pulled off an overtime comeback win last night. They beat the Florida Panthers 3-2. Clear skies with highs near 50 today. Clouds move in tonight and it'll fall to the upper 30s. So bundle up if you're heading out to trick-or-treat. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with highs in the mid-40s and a chance of showers. It's 40 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways. In select theaters Friday, everywhere November 10th. From Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. House Republicans have a new bill that would send about $14 billion to Israel for its war in Gaza without providing any extra funding for Ukraine's defense. The House plan contrasts with President Biden's broader proposal, which asks Congress for more than $100 billion for Ukraine, Israel, and other U.S. security needs. But how would any extra aid to Israel compare to the billions that the U.S. are Already spends on Israel's defense. Maya McGinnis is president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, and she joins me now to talk more about this. Good morning. Good morning. So if you could start by just giving us a breakdown of what's included in this House Republican bill that's being proposed that specifies the military aid package to Israel without aid to Ukraine. Absolutely. So both the House um, and the White House are asking for a similar amount of money to go to Israel, the just about $14.3 billion. And it's broken down into a number of categories. The largest would be general military support. That includes just military operations and training and education, um, and including replenishing some of the DOD, Department of Defense, stockpiles. Next largest category would be defense procurement. And so this would be transferring funds that would go directly to procurement for the Iron Dome defense system, which is their large missile defense system, uh, and another program, which is for short-range ballistic missiles. Um, Other areas of spending are military financing programs, procurement, diplomatic funding. There are a number of categories, all totaling about $14 billion. Now, this bill... um is saying that it wants to pay for military aid to Israel by cutting the same amount of funds allocated to the IRS under President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. How would this impact the federal deficit? So this is going to be a big stumbling block, right? It starts off that both the White House and the House are looking at the same amount of funding and the same allocation of funding. Looks like there's going to be some agreement. And then here's where things break down, which is the House is saying they want to offset the cost of this spending. Given our huge deficit in debts, that's a sensible approach. However, what they're talking about is repealing funding to the IRS, which in fact is probably the only program in the federal government that pays for itself. Mm. So it would actually double down on the borrowing by rescinding money that goes to the IRS, which would translate into a larger loss of money in collected revenues. So that could be twice as expensive as the actual bill if that were paired with pulling back some of the IRS funding. Not the smartest offset if what you want to do is be fiscally responsible. 
So let's talk about this $14 billion. I mean, this is something that both the House Republicans and the Biden administration agree on. Could you put that in the context of pre-existing USAID to Israel? Sure. So, I mean, since World War II, Israel has been by far the largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid. Um, It's been over $300 billion in that time period. And basically on an annual basis where, yeah, last year our largest amount of funding was to Ukraine, but generally the largest amount of money we provide to is Israel. And much of that is anchored in something where we've had a memo of understanding with Israel for a number of decades now, since 1999, where we commit to a certain level of funding. Last year, we gave $3.3 billion. So obviously, $14.3 billion would be a significant bump up from the $3.3 billion that we, they, we have been giving them. Um, So Israel can rely on the U.S. for significant funding. This would be a huge bump up from what is normal. That's Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Thank you for your time, Maya. Thank you. All right. We're a couple of months into a huge and complicated monopoly trial against Google. Yeah, the Justice Department has laid out its case. Now it's Google's turn. One of the first witnesses it called was its CEO. NPR's tech correspondent, Dara Kerr, was in the courtroom. Dara, so what did the Google CEO say? Hello. So Sundar Pichai has been at Google for nearly 20 years, and now he's the CEO of both Google and its parent company, Alphabet. He has a long history working with Google's search engine business, which was the meat of his testimony. What we've learned over the course of the trial is that Google has made deals with all sorts of companies to ensure that its search engine is the default on computers and phones. In his testimony, Pachai said this is critical for the company business. He said Google realized early on how important search is to bringing people online and increasing people's online activity. Of course, with more people online using Google search, the company makes more money. So the government says the way Google does that is an abuse of its power as a monopoly. Google has around 90% share of the search market. So how does it do that? How does it have such dominant in that market? What's been really remarkable with this trial is hearing about how all of these massively powerful companies do business. At the center of this case are these deals where Google pays billions of dollars a year to device makers and web browser companies. What we learned last week during trial and then came up again yesterday is that in 2021, Google paid $26 billion to enter these deals. Pachai said the central goal with these deals is to make Google's service better for users. During his testimony, he said, quote, we want to make it very, very seamless and easy to use our services. But the Justice Department says the deals can actually degrade the search experience for people. Why does the government say that what Google is doing is illegal? The Justice Department alleges that because Google dominates the market and pays to stay there, other companies can't come in and compete. They're basically frozen out. Most people don't even know they're being directed to Google's search engine when they type something in their iPhone or Android phone. The government also says that when a company gets as big as Google and becomes a monopoly, it's no longer forced to innovate. So what that means for consumers is we're stuck with whatever Google creates. 
During the trial, we've heard testimony from smaller search engines like DuckDuckGo, which have said it's impossible to compete with Google when they have these default agreements. So theoretically, there could be a better search engine out there, but we wouldn't know since it's too difficult to enter the market. Wow. Now, there's a lot going on for uh, Google in this trial, um, and it could have massive implications. How long is this trial expected to go? Yeah, Google is planning to call at least 10 witnesses and is expected to wrap its defense within the next three weeks. Then the Justice Department will have a chance for rebuttal. So this is a bench trial. There's no jury, and the judge will make the final decision. If he sides with Google, the company carries on as usual. If the judge goes with the government, that could mean anything from fines to putting an end to those exclusive agreements. And that could have a huge impact on Google's bottom line. NPR's Derek Kerr, thanks a lot. Thank you. Later on All Things Considered, the winner of the 2024 presidential election will have a chance to change how the next U.S. Census is conducted, changes that could affect the next election. Listen on your reliable radio, your phone, or ask your smart speaker to play NPR. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the steadily rising cost of childcare. Families today are spending 30% more than they did in 2019. We'll hear how they're coping. Sunny in upper 40s today, increasing clouds tonight along with temperatures in the upper 30s. Then for the first day of November tomorrow, mostly overcast in the mid 40s with a chance for rain. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, a Wilmington-based 3D printing company is getting $99 million to increase production. Surah Technologies plans to use the money to boost its production capacity of 3D printed components for manufacturers. The company says it received the funding because its technology already allows it to print 3D metal parts faster than its competitors. Cambridge-based Sarepta Therapeutics says its gene therapy to treat a muscular dystrophy disorder failed its Phase three clinical trial. The treatment was granted conditional approval by the Food and Drug Administration earlier this year. Sarepta says it still plans to seek full approval. It says the drug has other benefits for people with muscle disorders. A popular sushi restaurant in Alston that was open for more than a decade is now closed. Fish Market Sushi Bar closed on Sunday. The owners tell Boston.com they lost customers during the pandemic. They also blame increased food and labor costs for the closure. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni, restaurant, and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com and the ICA, Art from the Caribbean and Beyond in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, ICABoston.org. This is W.B. Moore's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A court hearing later today could determine what happens to unhoused families in Massachusetts seeking shelter. State officials say the system is almost full and they plan to start putting families on a wait list soon. But advocates are warning that could lead to safety concerns. They're working to block the move with a legal challenge and a rally at the State House. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel met one family that was stuck outside the shelter doors. 
I spoke with Nagumi in a basement in Chelsea at the social services nonprofit La Collaborativa. And how do you spell Nagumi? N A. I'm only using her nickname because of her immigration status. She says her story starts in Peru, where she sold clothes on the roadside. But she explains she had to pay high fees to street gangs. Fees she couldn't pay. Nagumi says members of the gang beat her and broke her nose. And then they came back, armed and threatening to kill her. She decided to abandon everything. She says it isn't worth it. With her husband and three children, ages 12, 6, and 4, they made their way to the U.S. When they got here, they learned they couldn't stay with family. And they thought their immigration status meant they wouldn't qualify for the Massachusetts family shelter system. So a cousin connected them with an acquaintance who had space in her Chelsea apartment to rent. When she saw the place, she says she felt short of breath. She was desperate. This person was offering half of a bedroom. The other half was rented to a father and son. The cost? $550 a month. Nagumi's family of five had no choice. They slept there, on one mattress that had lost most of its stuffing. She says things in the apartment got tense. She wasn't allowed to talk or make noise, she says, or even change clothes in the bathroom. But she couldn't change in her room because it was shared. As Nagumi and her husband tried to make money, they reluctantly left their children with the person renting them the room, who worked as a babysitter. But soon, things got worse. Their six-year-old started wetting himself, and their 12-year-old was acting out. Nagumi says one day, her daughter confessed. The woman was leaving the youngsters home alone and forcing the 12-year-old to shoplift. Her daughter said the woman threatened to call the police if she complained and report her mom for child abuse. It's really horrible what we're seeing, and our families are just, like, on survival mode. Norielise de Jesus directs policy and organizing at La Collaborativa. She's been working with Nagumi's family. She says situations like this one are increasingly common. It's become like, at least I have a roof, so it's okay if I don't have access to a bathroom, it's okay if I don't have access to a kitchen, and conditions with mice, bedbugs, and roaches, that's, that's become a norm. So it's, it's really devastating. De Jesus worries that putting families on a wait list when they need shelter will lead to more devastating situations. She says Nagumi and her family have found a better place to live, but it took many months. They spent time outside and sheltering in a hospital. At the State House this month, Governor Moore Healy said she's sympathetic to what families are going through. Massachusetts, we are a compassionate state. We take seriously our duty of care for those who are vulnerable. And we value the hope and the resilience that newcomers bring. But Healy said the state shelter system is running out of space and funds, and it just can't serve more than 7,500 families. Our shelter system cannot expand indefinitely. This level of demand is not sustainable. State officials are hoping the federal government will help. Nagumi says her hope comes from her children. Es algo 
cuando mi niño viene con su estrellita y que lo hizo bien. When her son comes home from school with a little star because he's learning English, she says maybe there is good that will come from the suffering. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the latest on Israel's offensive in Gaza and the situation on the ground for civilians trying to survive. U.S. officials say they're optimistic that the number of aid trucks entering the region will soon increase. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. I'm Robin Young. Aaron French is the creative force behind one of the hardest restaurants in the country to get into, The Lost Kitchen, and now in a new book she's sharing some of her secrets. This book is really about giving you that tool to add a little something special that you can take something that feels ordinary and make it extraordinary. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Israeli leaders are rejecting calls for a ceasefire in Gaza as military forces push push farther into the region. Family and colleagues notified authorities with concerns about the main mass shooter well before last week's violence in Lewiston. And striking auto workers in the Midwest are set to return to their jobs after reaching a tentative contract agreement with car makers. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series with Renee Fleming and Inan Barnaton, November 12th at Symphony Hall, with Voice of Nature, the Anthropocene, CelebritySeries.org. Near 50 today under sunny skies, upper 30s tonight, and it grows cloudy. There's a chance of showers tomorrow, otherwise mostly cloudy and in the mid-40s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com. When financial advisors look out for number one, and that one is them, not you. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Baird, dedicated to attracting and retaining talent from across the financial industry, providing continuity for clients. More at BairdDifference.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. The Biden administration announced today a move to crack down on what it's been labeling junk fees. This time, financial advisors who push strategies that benefit the advisors but cut into people's life savings. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer reports. Right now, the federal government requires investment advisors to only recommend investments like mutual funds that are in the best interest of their clients. But there's a loophole. That rule doesn't apply to commodities or things like fixed index annuities. Leo Brainerd, director of the White House National Economic Council, says sometimes advisors recommend products that pay them the highest fees rather than investments that would be in the client's best interest. When a retirement saver pays for trusted advice that is actually not in their best interest and comes at a hidden cost to their lifetime savings, that's a junk fee. 
The proposed new Labor Department rule would require that recommendations for any investment be in the client's best interest. That would include advice on rolling over a 401k retirement plan or even which retirement plans an employer should offer in the first place. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. The Federal Reserve starts its two-day meeting on interest rates later today. I spoke with economist Julia Coronado in Austin. She's founder and president of Macro Policy Perspectives. The Fed has signaled pretty clearly that they are once again going to take a breather on raising short-term interest rates. So it's really about the tone and how imminent the threat of the next rate hike is or if one is needed. But what about the theory that the market moved interest rates up anyway? I mean, like, they're up there. Yeah. Longer-term interest rates have risen in the last few months. Something that the Fed has acknowledged might do some of the work for them. People bought into higher for longer interest rates, and that was a battle the Fed had been fighting. They don't need to fight that anymore. So they might not need to do as much, if any, with short-term rates anymore. Longer-term rates are high. Economist Julia Coronado is also a professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Dow and S&P futures are little changed. The 10-year interest rate up slightly 4.85%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by How We Survive. Climate change is dire, but it does not have to be world-ending. Tune in to the new season of How We Survive from Marketplace. We watch one documentary a month for Econ Extra Credit. For the month just ending, it's Telemarketers on the Max HBO streaming service. Fascinating CD tale of two Jersey guys who worked in a boiler room telemarketing operation raising money where not much of that money actually went to charity. On this subject of scamming here, while the financial exploitation of older Americans is a dangerous, costly epidemic, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that younger people are also falling for scams right and left. Scammers do not discriminate in this way. Emma Fletcher studies this as senior data researcher at the Federal Trade Commission. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yes, older people are targeted by scammers, but as you found, it is not mainly older people. Younger people are reporting scams as well. And in fact, they're more likely to report losing money to a scam than older people. Older people, when they do lose money, they tend to report much higher losses. Uh, But it Mm. also depends on the type of scam. So we see that certain scams affect younger people more and certain scams affect older people more. And also the different ways of reaching people happen depending on whether they're younger people or older people. So, for example, younger people are more likely to be scammed on social media. It's interesting. Uh, There are some researchers who think that although in some older people our ability to detect scams may decline, the antidote may be the wisdom of years. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, A good example of that would be fake check scams. Younger people are much more likely to lose money on a fake check scam. Mm. Yeah, another example of that would be, you know, when you're 19 and you're just starting out in life, you haven't filed that many tax returns, you may not know that the Internal Revenue Service does not call you with an issue. That's another great example. But certainly older adults are being scammed. It's just that younger adults are being scammed as well. And that's a narrative that you don't always hear. And in fact, on certain types of scams, 
you know, it's really concerning. For example, on investment scams lately, we've seen a huge increase in the number of people reporting that they were scammed on a cryptocurrency investment where they thought they were investing cryptocurrency, but really they were sending money to a scammer. And those are far, far more likely to be reported by younger consumers, about three times more likely. Also, things like job scams, seven times more likely to affect younger people than older individuals. Now, of course, that might also have something to do with, you know, the likelihood of looking for a job. But that seven times number is just pretty staggering. And then for both older and younger consumers, scams involving online shopping purchases are number one. But younger people are far more likely to have had those negative experiences where they ordered something often after seeing an ad on social media and then they just did not get what they ordered. I mean, what are ways that anyone, but we're talking about younger people, can help protect themselves? So I think it's really important for people to recognize that, yes, a scam could happen to you. And this information is relevant to you. This is not information to just pass on to your grandmother. This is information that matters in your life. And, you know, don't assume that it can happen to you. That is going to create a risk when you think that this is something that just happens to older people or other people. Emma Fletcher is a senior data researcher at the Federal Trade Commission. Thanks so much for this. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Emma also mentioned watching out for scammers who send a check that posts in your bank account but then gets clawed back out. Follow along with our Econ Extra Credit newsletter. Sign up free at marketplace.org slash newsletters, as many thousands have. And this note, if you've been watching that docu-series, The Telemarketers, with us, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer, one of the two main characters in the program, the irrepressible but complicated Patrick J. Pespas, was reported safe at home on Thursday in Easton, Pennsylvania, after going missing for more than three weeks. The co-director of Telemarketers posted that he hoped to tell the whole story one day, but for now, Pat and his wife seek privacy. Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Hunger to Health Collaboratory, catalyzing integrated solutions that advance health equity. Fall Summit with keynote by U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health, Admiral Rachel Levine, at CitySpace on November 16th. Register at h2hcollaboratory.org. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.